Good morning. You're with me. Amazing. If we have not met, my name is Chris. I'm the youth pastor here at Lagan Valley Vineyard, and it is my sheer delight and pleasure to welcome you here. We love that you're here in Lagan Valley Vineyard in Lisbon and Altona State. You could be anywhere in the world right now, but you're here with us, and I love that. Um, We've been in a series for the last little while called Tales of the Kingdom. We've been looking through the book of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus, what he taught, and also what he demonstrated throughout his ministry. We've been looking at all the aspects of which he's taught around this thing that he's ushering in and demonstrating in called the kingdom of God. I wonder um, if you've ever had an experience where you've ate something and it immediately just did not feel right. Like you knew, like, as soon as you've had it, this is going to come back around in a very negative connotation in one way or another. Well, a few summers ago, me and a few friends just graduated university. We decided that we were going to plan a trip. The trip that we wanted to do was starting in San Francisco, going down to LA, back up to San Francisco and fly home. It was going to be eight weeks. There was five of us that wanted to do it. There was three of us that were going to be in for the full eight weeks. And then there was kind of another one or two that would chip in and out, fly in and fly back and join us. One of the things that I find really difficult when I'm traveling is to try to stay healthy, try to eat well. I call fast food for a reason. I had burritos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was being to look like one by the end of it. And it's just whatever was accessible to me, I wanted to eat it and consume it. And so around week seven, we had arrived at a conference that we were kind of planning our trip around that we wanted to go to. It was a conference called Inspire. It was at Bethel in Reading. And there was three of us at this moment in time. And we walked in. The first thing we learned is that people in Reading absolutely love Irish people. I don't know if it's the accent or how we look. Am I right? Uh, but there was something about when we rocked in, they were like, we love these guys. We want to treat them well. We want to show them around. I later learned that the reason why that was is because that every female loved James Toll. And... Uh, there was a sudden influx of girls, and guys before he met Hannah, a sudden influx of girls in California that decided that God was calling them to Ireland, and they were telling James that. And uh, side note, but anyway, they took us out for food that night, and I was like, yes, like, they'll know the area, they'll know somewhere good for us to eat. I'm sick of eating fast food. I want something different. And so they took us to a place called Chicken Shack. Chicken Shack was a uh, shack, sold chicken. Need I elaborate more? I don't. And... Uh, Honestly, I like chicken and I like fried chicken, but this fried chicken would look, make an Ulster fry look like salad. It was the greasiest stuff I have ever seen in my life. And I attempted a little bit, and then I was like, I'm not going to do it. And then they told us about this dessert they had, okay? They were like, we've got this dessert. You've got to try it. Like, you'll have tried nothing like it before. We're like, okay. Like, they were buying it for us. So we were like, it's totally fine. So they brought down this little tray of these little fried circles. And what they were, they were fried Oreos. You know the cookies? The, the fried Oreos. Kind of like a battered Mars bar, you know? Like... Some of us have tried butter Mars bars. They might seem like a good idea at the time, but they're never later. So, um, so I was like, yeah, sure, like, I'll try it. Like, I need to try something because James has got all the attention here. I'll need to try to do something maybe a little bit stupid, try to get some attention back on me, you know. And so I tried the, the I literally tried half an Oreo, none of the rest of them tried it. I tried half an Oreo, and immediately I was like, I, I don't like that. That's not good. That does not sit well with me. And so we had this at 5 o'clock. We went to the conference. Um, I was beginning to feel worse and worse and worse. I was like, James, I don't feel good. I think I'm going to be sick. I really don't feel good. James was like, shut up, Chris. You'll be fine. We came, came to prayer ministry. I walked forward. I was like, I need healing. I need deliverance. This Oreo is killing me. Whatever you have, I'll take it. And uh, I was beginning to like, this was really starting to take a toll on me. And uh, we arrived back to our, our room. And James 
knowing that I'm not a person to, number one, complain or exaggerate, decided he was going to help me out. He was like, I think I've seen something downstairs. I want to help you out. So he went downstairs, and he grabbed this, this massive like AC unit, like air conditioning unit. It, looked, it was like the size of a small fridge. It was massive. And he brought it up in our room, and he's like, I know it's really warm at night. You really struggle to sleep when it's warm at night. It's not going to help you when you're not feeling good. We'll put this AC in your room. We'll leave it on, and you'll feel good. So we turned it on, cold air blew out. It was all great. Starting, I was starting to feel better, and I fell asleep. I woke up three hours later in what I can only describe as the nearest I've ever been to my deathbed. That was not an AC unit. That was an industrial-sized room heater that they'd kept for winter that James had just put into our room. We woke up three hours later. I couldn't see because all the moisture in my eyes was sucked out. I couldn't speak because there was nothing in my mouth that could get words out. And I lost about three stone in literally three hours in weight from sweating. And so, and then my wonderful prayer was answered. Suddenly it was time for the Oreo to depart from me and leave me. If you know what I mean. I don't want to get into details, but when you're trying to throw up and you have no moisture in your throat, it sounds like you're roaring like a lion. And I woke up our entire house, probably most of Reading, and I was up literally all night. It was one of the worst experiences I have ever had. Um, and the next morning, James decided to throw a shoe at me in bed with like one hour sleep and say, thanks, mate, I didn't get any sleep last night. I was like, oh, really? You didn't get any sleep last night? So what's the point, more so than a potential manslaughter charge against James Toll? I had something so, so small that had such a massive and significant impact. I had just a little bite, a tiny little fried Oreo. Like, what's the worst that could happen? And I was up all night throwing up. That brings us to where we're jumping back into our story. And to add a little bit of context, to add a little bit of story around what's happening at this point, Jesus began to teach his ministry in Israel. He began to teach this idea of the kingdom of God. He's demonstrating what it looks like, but he's also teaching it in word. He's challenging the social constructs around him. He's challenging the political constructs around him as well. And as he's going on this, well, firstly, what is kingdom of God. kingdom of God in the most simple form is where what God wants happens. It is a spiritual kingdom. He is the king of that kingdom and is now being ushered and introduced to earth. It is where what God wants happens. And he's using a method of teaching. He's telling parables. He's telling stories to illustrate this as well as demonstrating it in doing. One scholar quotes this on the teaching mode. He says, a parabolic method of teaching uses a cultural commonality as a mutual standing ground to unpack the truth. In simple Chris terms, that's earthly illustration, spiritual truth. Earthly illustration that somewhat resonates with the people in that time and in that context that is unpacking a far more profound and exuberant truth around that, using it to demonstrate what he's trying to say. And so we jump into our text. So if you have your black Bibles, why don't you go ahead, turn to page 698. We'll be jumping in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. I'll read it here. Starting in verse 30. And again, he said, he being Jesus, what shall we say about the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? 
is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. This morning, I want to focus on how small the mustard seed is, but how big it can become. Previously, as Jesus has been walking through, he's been teaching about the kingdom. He's been demonstrating it, telling stories, parables, to draw people in and to explain what it is, to unpack it in creative, yet very relatable ways. And it's kind of came to this point where this is a pivotal place. He's told the people what the kingdom of God looks like, how it functions, what the mode is around it, but they haven't really understood it. They're not really grasping what it is. And the reason why is because it looks radically different to what they were anticipating. This is quite a pivotal place, and Jesus uses the parable of a mustard seed to demonstrate and to show people what the kingdom of God is really like in an accurate sense. He's a metaphor. I don't want to get too technical in the metaphors, but a metaphor has two major components. It has a tenor and it has a vehicle. Tenor is the subject ascribed to it. So in this case, the subject ascribed to the metaphor is the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, where what God wants happens. And the vehicle attached to it, which is supposed to demonstrate what that looks like, is a mustard seed. This is where they have the issue, because the vehicle in which they thought it was going to look like looked a lot more like an army or people wielding swords, or lions, or some other thing that's very aggressive and not a mustard seed. And this is what they take issue with. Why a mustard seed? Allow me to chip in a little bit of an interesting idea around the context. Where this is happening is right at the very north of Israel, by the Sea of Galilee. Um, This point in Jesus' life and ministry is known as the Galilean ministry. What's interesting about that area is that mustard trees were, mustard trees were extremely, extremely common. You would have seen them everywhere. But more interestingly so is that mustard trees in that area would grow up 25% larger than anywhere else in Israel because of the sea and salt. And, I'm a youth pastor, not a tree enthusiast, but they would grow 25% larger, so you just have to take my word on that. And so the people who are hearing this understand what a mustard tree is. They understand what a mustard seed is. They understand how small it is how insignificant it is, but yet how large it is. To give you an idea, I don't have any mustard seeds with me, but if I was to hold a handful of mustard seeds and wave my other hand quickly against it, pretty much all the mustard seeds would fly out of my hand. They are as light as dust. They are so minuscule. They're almost microscopic. And so the people hearing this understand what the mustard seed is, but yet they can't grasp how this could be the introduction, how this could be the demonstration And the illustration used as what the kingdom of God, which is supposed to free them and liberate them, could look like. As discussed, this is familiar to them. I want to make a point that parables technically hold two components around them. They hold somewhat of a warning, not in the sense of don't do this and it'll be bad. Some point of a warning of don't miss out on what I'm trying to show you. Don't miss out on what is coming in. Don't be late to the party of what is being demonstrated and being ushered in before your very eyes. Join in with it. Don't miss the bus. And then the other aspect of it is this idea of promise. This idea that is focal to the character of God, that he holds promise inside what he's trying to say around the kingdom. And so I'd like to comment to say that perhaps the warning around this isn't what they see, but how they see it. What Jesus is introducing here in this parable is a kingdom lens. A kingdom way of seeing. We went to Hydro uh, two weeks ago. I've been like four times. I love it. But we went like to Hydro two weeks ago with a few lads from church. And uh, the McConaughey showed up late. It's not an important part of the story, but they showed up late. So, uh, surprise, surprise. Just kidding. Love you a lot. But Sam wears glasses, and uh, 
and he wasn't wearing contact lenses. So when we went to Hydro, I was standing at the far right-hand side. It's like an inflatable water course. And I could see this guy, like, small figure, walking around, like Thelma from Scooby-Doo. Like, like, he no idea where he was. I was like, that's Sam McConaughey, and he's not wearing his glasses. And so he was aware he was at a water park. He was aware of what was around him. He was aware of how to engage with it and jump around, but he couldn't quite see clearly, so it affected how he could see what he was doing. It didn't change what was before his very eyes. The water park was still a water park, even though he didn't have his glasses on. See, a lens doesn't shift what we're looking at. It just makes it clear. makes it see it more truly for what it truly is. And the kingdom lens that Jesus is talking about in this moment is a lens that longs to identify with capacity, not deficiency. Longs to identify with potential, not lack. While they were looking at a mustard seed and saying, how could this possibly be what the kingdom could look like? The kingdom looks at something small and sees a great capacity to grow into something bigger and greater. Not something minuscule and insignificant, but something that holds the potential, if stewarded correctly, to grow into something large beyond what they can comprehend from just a small little seed. What they see before their eyes seems insignificant and small. Their cultural lens is prone to see whatever big is better. Whatever seems to be significant is what is really important. They're waiting for something mighty. They're waiting for something strong. They're waiting for something to overrule military occupation and freedom. And, and Jesus is standing before them and saying, it looks like a microscopic seed. You can understand how they could potentially be confused. But is this actually the same lens that perhaps culture around us has? What is the culture around us that decides what is significant or insignificant, or decides what is successful or not successful, or decides what is important and not important? You see, everything around us tells us that big is better. Allow me to elaborate further. Commonly, we'll, we'll kind of use the metric to define success or significance as three things, size, status, and stuff. So the size of our house, the size of our car, or numbers of cars, and the size of numbers that we have in our bank account will dictate whether we are successful and significant or, frankly, not. Or our status, how people talk about us, how the reputation we have, maybe the title we have in work, or how people talk about us in certain circles, whether we elevated to a place of popularity or not, that will decide on whether someone is really significant in our culture or not really. Because anyone who's significant has to have something attributed to them. And then lastly, stuff. The more stuff we have, the more happier we become, the more significant we seem to appear. If we've got loads of cars or boats or whatever load stuff is, if we have all that, it makes us look like we're significant or somewhat successful. See, our lens is bigger is better. And yet, actually has infected so much so into our language. Notice we say, and we're continuously looking for, what's the next big thing? Rarely do we hear, what's the next little thing? Something in us expects big to be better, big to be more significant, and big to be more successful. Yet one of the most wonderful truths as we read through the Bible is that God uses the small, what seems like insignificant, to do some of the most incredible things. What's also interesting is these people aren't also familiar with the mustard tree. They're also familiar with the scriptures. They're familiar with the story of God up until this point. They're familiar with the God of Israel They're familiar with the prophetic nature of the Old Testament, declaring of what the kingdom will look like. They are well clued in, yet their lens is for the big. See, when we look back through scriptures, and if we start to turn from Mark 
back through, through the Old Testament, we begin to realize there's a pattern. It's a big God, and he does big things, but he uses very small and, frankly, unlikely beginnings. That's technically how he tends tends to operate. Zechariah 4, verse 10, do not despise small beginnings, says it in black and white. And in the gospel, like we read, he is faithful with the least, can also be faithful with much. If you look back through history, we begin to see the operating system God uses, the small, the insignificant, the written off to do something that is incredible and beyond our wildest dreams. Don't believe me? Good, because I've got some examples. First off, Gideon, perhaps one of my favorite Gideon um, is in charge to lead Israel into freedom, into war against the Midianites. The Midianites are described in the Bible, in the book of Judges, as an army as thick as locusts, with camels as numerous as grains of sand on the seashore. They have a huge army, and Gideon stands before God with an army of 33,000, which at that being is incredibly less than what he's gone up against. And God asks him in a simple and small act of obedience to reduce his army from 32,000 to just 10,000. It makes no sense. It is smaller. It seems like it's absolutely crazy to do something like that. And in obedience, he does it. And then further before war, God asks him to reduce it by another 9,700, leaving, leaving him with just 300 people to go to, against an army that is beyond numerical comprehension. It seems totally ludicrous. It does not make sense, and it is small. Yet these 300 men overrule one of Israel's biggest enemies. It is marked as one of the greatest victories they've ever had. Right here in the Bible, we, we see that, that number, numbers and size do not equal significance or success or victory. But obedience in the small things is what opens up our God to win the battles. David. We hear a lot about David, most likely the story of David and Goliath, how he killed a giant. But looking back into the history before he got to that point, we find a lot of very interesting things. David was last picked of all his brothers to go to war. He was the most overlooked one of all of them. He was the most underqualified one as deemed by his father to go to war. And while his brothers went to war, he was left to tend to sheep, be a shepherd. He longed to be a warrior and was left to be a shepherd. And what would happen is, as he was looking after sheep, lions and bears would come and try to attack and kill the sheep. He would defend those sheep against lion and bears with his life. A sheep seemingly completely insignificant and frankly worthless whenever drawn against a lion. And he would put his life on the line to protect it. He would be faithful with the smallest of things, the smallest of tasks. And then secondly to that, how he arrives at the place of Goliath is he's asked to deliver lunch to his brothers who are at war. He's asked to serve them and feed them. And when he arrives on the scene, he finds Goliath, a giant, taunting the people of God. And he says, I can't do this. Because David was faithful with the small things, he found himself in front of a massive thing. But because he was victorious in the small things, God led him to be victorious in the big things. And with a sling and a stone, he fired at the giant's head, killed him, and then cut off his head. Proving that status and reputation, no matter how big it may appear, no matter how colossal it may seem, does not equal significance, does not equal success. But yet God chooses the one who was completely overlooked, the forgotten shepherd boy became the giant killer in one moment. One of the most famous stories of Jesus' ministry is the story of feeding the 5,000. A little boy offers what he has, not much in comparison to 5,000 people. In fact, very little, little when you compare it side by side to 5,000 people. And he gives it sacrificially. 
He gives it freely. It's an act of generosity from the boy to give what he has. And then they give thanks for it. Generosity and then gratitude. They give thanks for what has been given. And somewhere in there, it multiplies to be beyond what it could ever be. So much so that there is stuff left over. You see, when we give generously, even in the smallest of ways, and we give sacrificially, even in the smallest of ways, he's not a God that meets our expectations. He's one who exceeds it. And there's baskets left over. It is central to this idea of the kingdom that multiplication is around it. From a song, to a flower, to a little boy's lunch, to a baby in a manger, a teenage mother, star in the sky, a cup of water, a cup of coins in an offering basket from a widow to a mustard seed, it is consistent. God operates with the small things to do remarkable things. And he asks us to adapt this kingdom lens that chooses to see the potential rather than the deficiency in the small things. That chooses to trust him with the little Trust him with what seems insignificant to watch him do something significant with it when we offer it to him. We're in this series in a moment called Tales of the Kingdom. Jesus was walking around place to place telling stories, telling parables, tales of we, as we have put it, telling these ideas, these metaphors, unpacking the truth around the scripture. And you see, what Jesus was trying to do is that there was an expectation around what the kingdom would look like that actually wasn't what Jesus was ushering in. They were expecting swords wheeling, fire from the skies, multitudes of men, and a giant coming down to lead them into battle. And it came with a baby in a manger, born to a stable, the raised to be a carpenter, and then to be a man who would go around city to city, place to place, healing and restoring. See, what's true is that whoever tells the best story will shape the culture. The culture that was around them was expecting something different. The culture which Jesus came to usher in was through story. It was through the little things that would prove to be significant. It was through the small things that would choose to be big. And he was trying to build something around the kingdom. He was trying to establish a kingdom culture. And he was telling stories to do it. When I was younger, I used to read the Bible and just think it was just a pile of little stories, like nice, like Jesus walking on water was like a little cute story, you know, like far from it. It was like raging waves and he was walking along it. But these stories are illustrating and creating a culture around it. James, if you want to jump up. The word testimony we use a little bit. In, in the Christian faith, you may hear people walk up to you and be like, can I share my testimony with you? What they mean by that is, can I share with you what God's done in my life? Can I share with you the story of what God did and what only God could do? The word testimony I find really interesting. If we go back into the Old Testament, we, we learn a lot about testimony. We learn a lot about telling stories of what God did. See, testimony carries a prophetic essence. What is the prophetic? The prophetic is the future crashing into the present. It's what God wants and is inviting us into in the present and how that affects what we do in the here and now. Changes our present reality. The word testimony in the Old Testament comes from a phrase that would be often attached to it when people said testimony, when they shared testimony, when they shared stories. And the stories they were sharing are stories we read about in the Old Testament. There's stories about Gideon. There's stories about David and Goliath and, and so on. And whenever they share their stories, what would be attached to that language is, is this phrase that was consistent with the Old Testament reference of testimony. It says, do it again. 
when they share a testimony, what they would begin to expect or what they would hear is this attitude of do it again. See, what, what has happened can be duplicated. What has happened can be repeated. He hasn't just done it once and that's it's over. It can be reproduced like seeds from a mustard tree that fall and are planted and grow into a massive tree. There's reproduction in the kingdom. It longs to multiply and grow further. These aren't just stories to look at like a little small seed. There's something in them that if we realize that if God has done it before, then he can do it again. See, the beauty is that we begin to realize what God's done. When we begin to look back upon God's history with humanity, it is littered with the impossible becoming possible. It's littered with some of the most remarkable stories of God coming through. And we realize that and we have the attitude of doing it again. We begin to see our own current circumstances through God's history with humanity. See, this kingdom that he is teaching is a kingdom that only knows advance. It doesn't know standstill. It doesn't know retreat. It doesn't know sideways. It only knows move forward. That is a promise and a warning. We are not built for the sidelines, but to get involved. Even if it's what we have that is small, we're invited into it to watch it blow up and explode in our wildest dreams. It may not be easy, but it is an invitation to the wide open spaces, the extravagant life that God has called each and every one of us to. And he's just waiting for us to do something very small and in return for him to do something big the kingdom cannot be stopped when Jesus is sharing the story the parable of the mustard seed he's a matter of weeks away from his death they couldn't stop what he was teaching they couldn't stop what was happening around them they couldn't stop the demonstration and the reality of the kingdom crashing into the presence so much so that they wanted to kill him they could find no fault in him but they had to stop it some way And so they put him to death. And we all know how that ends because three days later he rose from the dead, defeating death eternally and disarming the power of sin so that we may live in the freedom that he has made available to us. Not just God in the flesh, but God in all flesh around us. And the kingdom of God, as we have read, uses the unlikely. We are here in Lisbon, Northern Ireland because 12 average men who failed many times, who were underqualified, who were undereducated, who did not fit the bill, who were scruffy around the edges, paid attention and were obedient with the small things. And it grew over the thousands of years into something that has us sat here. Because 12 people paid attention. There's a lot more people in this room than 12. See, when we hear stories and testimonies of what God has done, it changes our current circumstance. When we read stories like Gideon, we can't sit in a room of four or 500 people and not begin to dream of what God could do with this community. Not just in our city, not just in our nation, but far beyond that. If, he doesn't, if the possibility is not in his vocabulary, if the kingdom knows no bounds, and if testimonies of past back it up, do it again. Do it again, and we'll be faithful in the small and obedient in the small. If he could kill a giant with a little shepherd boy, with the most unlikely of individuals, with the one who was written off the most. Maybe we feel like we haven't got much to give. Maybe we feel like we are underqualified, undereducated. We don't fit the bill. We stand no of a chance against any giant whatsoever. Never mind the giants that are confronting our society and culture. Testimony of past says, do it again. And if God could do something with some bread and fish that would multiply not just to meet needs but exceed it with the smallest of what he gave 
than what would it look like if we began to take whatever we had, no matter if it seemed insignificant, no matter if it seemed small, no matter if it seemed that it didn't fit up to the bill, and give it to him with generosity and with gratitude in our hearts and allow it to multiply. Generosity is the gift that keeps on giving. And the dream that we have for our city, we talk about all the time, that we become the most generous church in our city happens when we begin to engage in the small things, the things that we may even deem as completely insignificant. God gets a hold of it, it seems to grow a lot bigger than what we could ever understand. And so in response, I want us to do something that might seem small or insignificant. And we sang it earlier on, but I'm going to ask us to, to stand in a minute and we're going to sing. And we're going to sing, do it again. Do it again. And then my prayer is that as we begin to sing that, that God will begin to remind you of where he has brought you to this point. And as you look back, you'll realize that he has never failed you and he's not going to start today. And the circumstance that feels like it's surrounding you like a giant, he's not going to leave you in this moment. He's not going to start today. Would he remind you of how faithful he's been? Would he remind you of how generous he is? Would he remind you of how strong he is? Would he remind you of what the kingdom is? That is the place where the impossible is made possible, where generosity begets generosity and grows into something bigger, where needs are met, where people find hope and refuge no matter where they are, that people would get around us and realize there's a place for us to find hope and refuge, like birds underneath the branch we will grow into something that offers hope, that offers refuge to everyone and to anyone. Simple acts of obedience, simple acts of sacrifice, even the smallest of things can unlock some of the most remarkable things. In our community over the last so many years, we have seen tumors healed. We have seen families that are broken be repaired. We have seen the hope, hopeless find hope. We have found it sick, healed. We have seen generosity come in the most unlikely of places. We had an eight-year-old in our community who raised 800 pounds in one week for a charity because she wanted to be obedient in the small things. The smallest things. And so this morning where we stand and humbly say, we're so grateful for what you've done, but we are hungry for more and we're in for whatever costs. And I'm sorry if I thought it was significant, but I give it to you. And when we pray and when we declare, do it again, do it again, do it again, a thousand times over, do it again, exceed our expectations, do it again, make giants fall, do it again, make generosity in abundance, do it again. And so if you want to join me and stand, we're going to, we're going to sing. Jesus, would you remind us of who you are? Would you remind us of what you have made available? Would you remind us of your faithfulness that you're continuously and you always have been fighting on our behalf and you continue to day in, day out. And God, we long to see more. We long to see greater. We long to see the most incredible things happen in our community. But would you give us a lens for the small things? Would you give us a heart posture that says, do it again. Do it again, God. 